Well, we are in a series walking through the book of Genesis, and so if you've got your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have one for you over there uh, on that table. You can go grab one of those. That's our gift to you uh, as a church for you to keep. But Genesis chapter 3. Now, so far in our study in the book of Genesis, we've seen God create everything out of nothing, and He created a world, and the world that He created was really, really good. He created it as a gift for us. He created us, man and woman, in His image, gave us a purpose and a task. We were made to know Him and have relationship and fellowship with Him, and He put us in a good world. He put us in a garden in Eden, paradise, life as the way it was meant to be. He gave us a good design to walk in so that we were in paradise, naked and unashamed, nothing to hide, nothing to fear, life with God as it was meant to be. Uh, but we have arrived at the part in the Bible story where we screw all of that up and everything kind of goes to pot. Uh, we've made it to Genesis 3, which I'm sure you've heard reference before as the fall, when sin and death come into the world as Adam and Eve uh, eat from the tree and bring sin and death into the world. And so, man, this, this chapter explains why the world is the way that it is, why we are the way that we are, why we're so broken, and why our world is so broken and we have all these proclivities towards sin. It goes such a long way uh, to help us see that. And so there is a lot of darkness here and a lot of weight and uh, and depth to this, but even in the midst of all of that, I, I do want you to see that God does not leave us without hope. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk all the way through Genesis chapter 3 this morning, but for now, let's start by just reading the first seven verses. Starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us speaks to us like this. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Well, there are really... Uh, two ways we could walk through this story this morning. We could kind of talk about how this is where sin comes from, and this explains why the world is the way it is. Or we could talk about how the way the devil tempts Adam and Eve is the exact same way that he comes to us and he tempts us today. Uh, and what I really want us to do this morning is to do a little bit of both. Uh, a little bit of both, but I want us to start with that second one, because as helpful as this text is to explain our world and our situa situation, it's also so helpful to explain how the devil comes to us today and tempts us so that, uh, as 2 Corinthians says, we wouldn't be ignorant of his schemes. We wouldn't be ignorant of his devices, of the way he comes to us and tempts us today. And so now, I've been praying that God in his grace would just use this text to open up our eyes and, and give us strength and resolve so that we might not be so quick to give in uh, to the devil's temptations. And so here's how we're going to walk through this text this morning under three headings. Uh, first, why we sin. Second, what happens to us because we sin. 
And then third, what God does in response to our sin. And so first, why we sin. Uh, We closed out chapter two with Adam and Eve in paradise, naked and unashamed. Life as it was meant to be always. Life with God in the garden, in perfection. But when chapter three opens up, we find out immediately that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord God had made. Uh, That's an Old Testament way to say that homeboy is shady. Uh, He's deceptive. He is a trickster. And what we find out from the rest of this chapter and from the rest of the Bible is that this isn't just an ordinary snake. Like this is Satan, the devil, coming into and possessing and speaking through the snake. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and chapter 20, verse 2, both call Satan that ancient serpent, meaning the, the one who is here in the garden tempting Adam and Eve into sin. And so before human sin and death enters the world, there already was evil in the world. Like we we don't know when it happened, but the Bible seems to speak of the fall of Satan that that took place at some point before Genesis chapter 3. Like we we don't believe in dualism. We don't believe in this idea that good and evil uh, have eternally existed alongside of one another and they're equal forces and they're at war with one another and, and trying to figure out who's going to come out on top. Like Satan is not God's equal. Satan is a created being. Notice verse 1 says that he's more crafty than any other beast that the Lord had made. He is a created being, and God created him good, but it seems like at some point he fell. He fell into sin and rebelled against God and was judged for that. A place where I think you see this, Isaiah chapter 14, uh, it's talking about the king of Babylon, uh, but it seems to go just talking about, beyond talking about the king of Babylon and speak of Satan's fall. Listen to these verses. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Uh, Ezekiel 28 verses 11 through 19 is another place that does this. You can look it up later, but it's a prophecy about the king of Tyre. And once again, it seems to go beyond this and speak of the fall of Satan. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. You were the signet of perfection and beauty, yet you rebelled and were judged. And so Satan, the devil, in the form of this serpent, comes and begins to speak to Adam and Eve. And look at what he says right from the beginning. He says, did God actually say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Man, don't miss what he's doing here. He's already trying to sow doubt, sow the seeds of doubt in their mind about the goodness of God. He's saying, really? Like God, God said you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? That seems kind of ridiculous. That seems super restrictive and harsh if you ask me. Like, that seems like a pretty terrible God if I've ever heard of one. That's ridiculous that he would say that. And but, but if you notice, that's not what God said. Right? If you go back to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, God said they may surely eat from every tree that's in the garden except one, because if they eat of that one, they're going to die. God gave one no in a world full of yes, in a paradise where they had everything they could have ever needed or wanted, but Satan flips this on its head, uh, and he begins to make God seem like he's stingy and restrictive. 
And unfortunately, Eve begins to believe him. She responds back in verse 2 and says, Now, God said we can eat of the trees in the garden, uh, but the tree that's in the midst of the garden we're not supposed to eat from, neither are we supposed to touch it or we'll die. Now, Eve here, she both takes away some things that God said and she adds some things that God didn't say as she responds to the serpent here. She says that they may eat of any tree. She's taking out where God said they may surely eat of every tree. She's shrinking down God's generosity and his gift and his goodness. And then she adds something that God didn't say. She says we're not supposed to eat from the tree in the midst of the garden and we're not supposed to touch it. But God never said that. Eve's really the first legalist. Like she's adding a command that God never said and making God seem harsh and restrictive when he isn't. She's shrinking down the goodness of God. She's making him seem harsh and restricted and shrinking down his generosity. And listen, what I need you to understand is that this is the exact same way that we're going to be tempted today. We're going to be tempted with this same lie to believe that God is not good, that he is not for us, that we cannot trust him, and that the only way to find life and freedom is to disobey him and go outside of his commandments, that his commandments are not meant to give life and freedom to us. They're meant to take life and freedom and joy from us. Like This is what Satan is going to do in all of our lives. He's going to paint sin as freedom, and he's going to make God seem restrictive when he tells you not to do it. He's going to do this and bring it and make God seem restrictive, which means that everything about temptation, like it all comes down to the character of God. This is where the war is going to be fought. Answering the question in your heart and your mind, is God good or is he not? Is God for me or is he not? Does he love me or does he not? Can I trust him in what he says or do I need to go outside of him and try to find life and freedom by disobeying him? Listen, this is why theology, like what we think about God matters so much and why it matters so much that we actually press into our Bibles and read them like they're about God because what we believe about God and who he is uh, isn't just going to stay up in our heads it's going to come out in our actions. We're always going to act based on what we believe about who God is and what we know about his character. You, you see this as Eve is even beginning to do this here, and Satan sees his opening, and so he just intensifies this in verse 4, and he says, no, you're not going to die. You surely will not die. Like, that's not going to happen to you. God just said that because he knows if you eat of this fruit, you're going to be like him. You're going to know what he knows, and he doesn't want that. Now, hold up a second. Satan says if they eat from the tree, they're going to be like God. But weren't they already? Like, yes, they were made in the image of God. They're the most like God thing in all of creation. But Satan kind of takes from this and he presses this further. And he says, no, you've got to understand God is holding out on you. He's keeping things back from you. And he's lying to you. This isn't going to happen to you. He just doesn't want you to figure that out. And he doesn't want you to have this knowledge and get on his level. You see, the lie is that if we disobey and if we give in to sin, there won't be any judgment and there won't be any consequences. And I think this is one of the devil's best lies that he plays with us today, that when we disobey, that surely we will not die, that surely there won't be any judgment, that surely we won't face any consequences for our sin. 
I mean, think about it. No one in the moment thinks about how flirting with a coworker is eventually going to lead to the destruction of their marriage. Right? Like, no one thinks about in the moment how a, a small pattern of disobedience and compromise here and there is eventually going to blossom five to ten years down the road into something that destroys your life. No one thinks in the moment that just hoarding a little bit of money and keeping it to themselves is eventually going to lead to a life of them being enslaved to money uh, and a life of miserable greediness. No one thinks one act of gossip or slander is going to be enough to destroy a friendship. No one thinks uh, that one more look at pornography is going to be the one that enslaves them for years and absolutely destroys their lives. Right? If we did think those things, we wouldn't do them but, but part of the reason we give in to sin is because we believe this lie that when we disobey, there aren't going to be any consequences, that we won't face any judgment, that surely we are not going to die. And, and unfortunately, by this point, Eve has been fully convinced. And so verse 6 says uh, that when she sees that the tree looks good, that it's going to taste good, and this desire to make her wise... Uh, she gives in and she eats from it. This matches what 1 John 2 says about the temptations of worldliness. It says that when we give in to sin, when we give in to worldliness, we're giving in to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. Like what looks good, what feels good, and what's going to make us feel prideful about ourselves. And so Eve does this, and it says in verse 6 that she takes some of the fruit from the tree, she eats it, and then she gives some of it to her husband, Adam, who was with her the whole time, and he eats it as well. Uh, and then just like Satan always does with sin and, hides the, and shows off the bait while hiding the hook, verse 7 says, at this point, the eyes of both of them were open, but not in the way that they wanted them to be, because now they realize that they're naked. And so they begin to sew fig leaves together and try to hide themselves and, and cover themselves uh, from their sin and cover their shame. And listen, this is what all of us do in response to our sin. Like we're, we're tempted with sin, we give into it, we feel shame about it, and so then on the backside we try to cover and hide and project our sin, and no matter what we do to cover and hide it, it's all fig leaves. Like whether it's more money or more influence or more status or more popularity, more achievements, like whatever it is that you use yourself, that you use to tell yourself and to tell others, like, no, really, it's not that bad. I'm really okay. It's all fig leaves. In fact, religion, like church, can be one of the biggest fig leaves because we'll sin and then we'll go to church and we'll think that going to church and being in a community group and knowing some facts about our Bible is enough to cover our sin and make us good with God, and it's not. It's a fig leaf that will never be able to deal with our sin. And so this is bad, right? Adam and Eve have brought sin into the world, their eyes have been opened to the reality of what they've done, and it just starts to get worse from here. If the first seven verses show us why we sin, verse 8 begins to tell us what happens because we sin. Look at verse 8. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
So they hear God walking in the garden, and, and, and when they hear him, they run and they hide, try to hide from his presence in the trees. Now, this implies that this is something that happened regularly, them walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, but where previously they enjoyed this close, intimate relationship with God, where they walked with him and talked with him and knew him face to face. Now, what happens this time? They hear him and they try to hide from his presence in the trees, try to hide so that he won't see them. But the good news is that even when we run, God pursues. God comes after us. Like we can try and run in our sin, but the good news is that we really can't hide. Like God comes after us because he's not the one that's lost. We are. And because he's a really, really good God. And so he comes to Adam and he says, Adam, where are you? Now, look, this is grace. If you walk into your child's bedroom and it looks like a tornado went through the bedroom and there's just toys everywhere, like thrown all over the floor and they're broken and you just got all these broken pieces everywhere and you ask them, hey, what happened in here? You're not trying to figure out that if something happened in there or not, right? Like you, you know something happened in there. You know they did something. You're in trying to invite an explanation and a response. This is what God is doing with Adam here. He's inviting him to explain himself, give a response. He's not playing hide and seek because he doesn't know where Adam is. He's inviting him to repentance. And so Adam says, I, I heard your, the sound of you walking. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. This is just reiterating the shame that has come from their sin because the nakedness is not something new, right? The feeling of needing to hide is. When God said that if you eat of that tree in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, he wasn't lying. Adam and Eve have died spiritually and they're going to die physically because this intimate, close, face-to-face relationship they had with God has now been replaced by distance and hiding and shame, by feeling the need to cover themselves and hide from his presence. And so God says, Adam, did you do what I told you not to do? Who told you that you were naked? Look at how Adam responds in verse 12. It says, The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. So not only does Adam pass the blame off of himself onto his wife Eve, he also passes the blame off to God. Did you notice that? He says, It's her fault because she gave me the fruit of the tree, and it's your fault because you gave her to me. Like, God, I was doing great before she came along. This was your idea. I didn't have any part of this. I, I didn't ask for this. You did this. Really good job you did with her, God, in giving her to me. Like, how ridiculous is this, right? Last chapter, he's singing some R&B about how pumped he is that, that God has given him Eve as a gift, and now he's blaming her and he's blaming God for his disobedience. Uh, and before we judge him and be too harsh with him, it's not like Eve is going to fare any better. Look at what she says in verse 13. It says, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So just like Adam, instead of taking the blame on herself and admitting to her sin, she passes the blame onto the serpent who deceived her. And so after this, God begins to hand down judgments on the serpent and on Adam and Eve. Look at what he says to the serpent in verse 14. It says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, what God just said in verse 15 is huge. You've heard me say this before, but the entire Bible is really just an outworking of this promise that God gives as he's cursing the serpent uh, here in verse 15. And, And what he says is huge. He says he, singular, like one man is going to come and he's going to bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have here what people have called the first gospel. This promise that one day a a he, at one man, a man born of woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse that Adam and Satan and Eve have brought into the world. And, And so even in this judgment, there's this picture and promise and hope of grace, of a coming savior and a coming salvation. God moves next to judge, put judgment on Eve. Look at what he says in verse 16. It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, part of the curse that that many women experience because of our sin is pain and childbearing. And If you've experienced that, I really don't think I need to explain that. Like, you can testify to the truth of this verse, right? That that giving birth to a child is an extremely painful event. But but when it says, in pain you shall bring forth children, I, I don't just think it's talking about the moment of childbirth. I think it's talking also about the whole process of raising children. Like, because of our sin, because of the curse we've brought into the world, the whole process of raising children is going to be difficult emotionally as they grow up and they rebel and they make that bad decisions and they bear the consequences of their bad decisions. Like, it's going to be difficult and painful every step of the way. And, and, and as we read this verse, and as you hear me say that, like, like please don't miss this. I, I do need you to hear If you ever have or you are right now walking through uh, infertility or a miscarriage, God is not punishing you. Like, listen, these these are painful effects that we experience because of sin and because of the brokenness and curse that's in this world. But God is not punishing you for a specific sin that you've committed by causing you to be infertile or causing you to have miscarried. Like God does not work that way. He does not work based off of karma, where if you do a specific sin, he's going to reward you with a specific punishment. Like God is not punishing you. And But he, he moves on to the next part of this, and he says, Eve, your, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, there's a lot of debate about how this verse should be translated and interpreted, but I think the best thing for us to do to help us understand it is to jump one chapter over uh, to verse 7, where this exact same phrase is used. And there, in in chapter 4, God is talking to Cain about his sin, and he says, Cain's sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. God is saying, Cain, sin's desire is against you. It's trying to do harm to you. It's trying to hurt you, so you have to master it. You have to rule over it. You have to put a stop to it. And and so what this verse is saying is that because of our sin, because of the curse we've brought into the world, marriage is going to be difficult. Where, Where previously we had in Genesis 2, naked and unashamed, the two becoming one flesh, perfect joy and harmony, everything we could ever imagine it to be here, we're going to face the effects of the sin 
and the curse. Like wives are going to have a sinful tendency to be against their husbands, and husbands are going to have a sinful tendency to try to rule over and dominate their wives, whether that's verbally, emotionally, spiritually, or physically. Like we're, we're going to endure the difficulties and frustrations uh, of this curse. Like marriage was meant to be an easy, joyful harmony, but instead of experiencing that, so often we're going to be against one another. We're, only going to be, we're not going to be looking out for each other. We're not going to be able to agree with one another. Right, the, the house I lived in in college with some other guys was decorated with uh, a couch from the 1950s, a poster of James Dean, and a picture of a fair-skinned, blue-eyed Jesus that originated from a Mormon church. Uh, so I should have no ground whatsoever to stand on when it comes to interior design or like what goes into my house, right? But, but for some reason, sometimes I do have an opinion, and, and sometimes we can't agree on these things, right? But, but way more serious than just not being able to agree on small things is that so often we're going to fight with one another. We're going to strive against one another. We're only going to be looking out for ourselves. We're not going to privilege our spouse's needs above our own. And we're going to seek to try to dominate and control our spouse into doing what we want them to do. And, and, and because we are sinners, this is always going to be the natural tendency in our marriages to look out only for ourselves, to pursue our own way instead of pursuing peace, to be served instead of to serve. It's going to be difficult. Marriage, as joyful and as glorious as it is, it is going to be filled with pain. God moves next to curse, uh, to bring judgment on Adam. Look at what he says in verse 17. It says, unto Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam freely chose to disobey God. And because he freely chose to disobey God, he brought sin and curse into the world. And the specific aspect of the curse here is that work is going to be filled with difficulty. He says, when you go to work the ground, instead of it bearing fruit for you, it's going to bear thorns and thistles. It's going to be difficult. Like we're going to get up and go to work and come home and go to bed. We're going to get up and go to work and come home and go to bed. We're going to get up go to work, come home, and then you're going to die, and they're going to put your body back in the ground where, they came from, where you came from. Like, welcome to church, right? What an encouraging picture this is, isn't it? Man, but, but we all know this is true, don't we? That work is frustrating. And say you get a job, and uh, you need to be there at a certain time, but now you can't be there at a certain time because you need gas. But you can't get gas because there's a gas shortage. And unfortunately, there's not a shortage of doomsday preppers trying to get their left behind on, filling up 15 extra cans of gas. And so now you're stuck in line behind the guy filling up trash bags full of gasoline, and so you're late to work, and you get chewed out by your boss when you get there. And when you get there, you, the, the project that you needed to be done, like, None of your team has done what they needed to do. Uh, it's not going to be done the way it needs to be done. It's not going to be done on time, and you're going to have to carry the water for it, right? Like, it's frustrating. You've never heard my best sermons, and I've never preached my best sermons because, man, I'll have these great ideas in my head, like, oh, that's such a clear and helpful way to explain this text. 
that's so good, that's so uh, encouraging or, or transforming, and then I'll go down to sit and to write that out and just experience thorns and thistles. Like, where did it go? It, it's just gone. What, what seems so clear in my head is so difficult to get out on to paper. Man, this is, it's difficult, it's frustrating, it's life under sin and the curse. We do laundry just to have to turn around and do it again. We do dishes just to have to turn around and do them again. We mow the lawn just to have to turn around and do it again. We get up and we go to work and we sweat and we toil and we try to eke out an existence and provide for ourselves and for our families. And at the end of all of that effort, we die and we get put back into the ground that we came from. Man, it's just a terrible, terrible reality, isn't it? And I really don't want to minimize the, the terribleness of the reality because sin really is this destructive and the curse really does bring this much devastation into the world. You see, our first parents, Adam and Eve, brought sin into the world and they have passed their sin natures on to us so that we repeat this pattern every day. We give in to the same temptations and we experience life of brokenness under the curse. But as terrible and as depressing as this picture is, even here in Genesis 3, God does not leave us without hope. Uh, even here, he begins to give us pictures and promises of grace. And so look with me at verse 20. Let's see what God does finally in response to our sin. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam naming his wife Eve is an act of hope and faith in the promise God gave in verse 15. It's an act of hope and faith believing that, that death will not get the final word, that life will go on, and that from their line God will send this Savior that he has promised. And, and God clothing Adam and Eve with the skins of animals is also grace. Where they tried to cover their sin with fig leaves in a way that's never going to work, God clothed them with a substitute sacrificed in their place. And God driving them out of the garden and sending them into exile so that they won't eat from the tree of life and remain forever in their sinful state, remain forever under the curse, is grace. He doesn't want us to live under this state forever. He doesn't want the curse to have the final word. Remember, because of Adam and Eve's sin, this is where we find ourselves, living east of Eden, separated from God under our, on our own, living life under the brokenness and frustration of this curse. Adam and Eve brought sin and death into the world, and we continue to repeat this pattern day after day after day, believing the lie and giving in to temptation, believing that God is not good, that he is not for us, that he does not love us, that we can't trust what he says, that the only way to be happy and free is to go outside of him, and that when we do disobey him and go outside of him, we won't face any judgment or consequences for our sin. We keep giving into sin, we keep bringing more death and destruction into our world, and all of our best attempts to clean ourselves up and cover ourselves and make ourselves better and deal with our sin are all fig leaves. They're never going to work. 
The only hope we have is if God chooses to do something like he hints that he will do here at the end of the chapter. You see, Adam brought sin into this world through an act of his will, and so if we are going to be saved, we need another man to come, relive our lives in perfection so that his work could represent us. You see, God appointed Adam as the head and the representative of the human race so that what he did, we bear the consequences of, and he stands in for us and represents us. And maybe you say, hey, that's not fair. I'd like to be able to represent myself and make my own decisions. But I'll just say two things. One, uh, would you have done any better? I mean, what's your track record with sin? Not great, right? And then two, think of it like this. Imagine you've got uh, just this massive Fortune 500 company, and uh, man, it's just crushing it. Like, got massive stock, high stock prices, tons of stockholders and shareholders and investors, trustees that have attached their name and their reputation to this company, a ton of employees. Uh, But let's say that you've got the CEO for the company through poor leadership and management. He starts to tank the company, uh, and so he puts it on the verge of bankruptcy. And so now everybody's on the verge of losing all their money that they've invested. Everybody's on the verge of losing their jobs that works for this company. Everybody who's attached to their name and reputation to this company uh, is on the verge of all of that kind of going to pot. Now, even though it was completely his fault, what he did didn't just affect him in that scenario, right? Like it it had effects that spread to everybody that's attached to the company. And because it starts at the top, even if you replace some of the lower level employees with people who do a really good job and do everything that they're supposed to, it's not going to be enough to turn around the ship, right? And, And even if you fire the CEO, it's not like the new CEO gets to come in with a blank slate. Right? They're still on the verge of bankruptcy. They're still on the verge of everybody losing their jobs and everybody losing their money. They're still on the verge of everything going to pot. So if a new CEO comes in, he has to take all the responsibility of the previous CEO's failures on himself and bear those responsibilities if he's going to be able to turn the company around. Well, this is what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has become for us the head of a new human race. Have you ever realized that the same three temptations that Satan tempts Adam and Eve with here in the garden are the same three temptations he tempts Jesus with in the wilderness? He he tempts him to turn stones into bread, the lust of the flesh. He takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says they'll be his if he'll simply fall down and worship Satan, the lust of the of the eyes, and he tempts him to throw himself down from the temple, have angels catch him, and show everybody that he really is the Son of God, the pride of life. He tempts him, just like he did Adam and Eve, to doubt God's goodness, love, and care for him. This is why he tells Jesus, hey, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. Command these stones to become bread. He's saying, Jesus, God is not a good father. If God were really your father, he wouldn't be treating you this way. He wouldn't be letting you starve half to death out here in the desert, and he wouldn't let everybody misunderstand you and not understand who you are. He's not a good God. He's holding out on you. You're going to have to take matters into your own hands. But where Adam, in a world of abundance, with everything he could have ever needed at his fingertips, gave in and sinned and fell to temptation, Jesus, in a desert wilderness with no food after fasting for 40 days, does not give in. He trusts God and he wins. He's obedient. He's completely faithful. And at the end of Jesus's life, he finds himself in another garden. 
the Garden of Gethsemane, as the weight of what he's about to have to do on the cross begins to bear down on him, he starts to sweat great drops of blood and agonize in prayer. And he says, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not, what I, not my will, but yours be done. He trusts God. He conforms his human will to God's will. He trusts God and then he goes and he walks out of that garden and he goes to the cross, what the apostle Peter calls the tree. 1 Corinthians 15 calls Jesus the last Adam. The first Adam went to the tree and took from the tree and brought sin and death and devastation in the world. So Jesus, the last Adam, went to the tree, took sin and death on himself to bring life and blessing to the world. He turned the tree of death into a tree of life for us. Galatians 3.13 says that Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us that he bore the curse of our sins so that we could only know blessing, that he was crowned with thorns and thistles so that we could be crowned with eternal life. Jesus came as the last Adam, the new Adam, to come and relive our lives in perfection so that his work could stand in for ours, so that he could represent us, so that it could be given to us and we could be united to him so that we would no longer be found in Adam, we would be found in Christ and all that is his would become ours. Jesus is the Savior that was promised in Genesis 3.15. He's the one who will come and will crush the serpent's head and reverse the curse that they brought into the world. Galatians 4 says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, to redeem us from the curse and make us God's sons and daughters. Listen, this is why we come to the table and celebrate the good news of the gospel every week because Jesus has turned our curse and death into life and blessing for us. Did you notice that Genesis said that after Eve saw that the tree looked good, she took and she ate of some of its fruit and she brought death and destruction into the world? Well, when Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when Jesus is eating the Last Supper with his disciples, right before he's about to go to the cross, it says he breaks bread and he says, listen, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. Derek Kidner says it like this. He says, so simple the act, so hard the undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. You see, but by his death, Jesus has defeated death and has turned the symbols of our curse into the symbol of life for us. So we come to the table every week to take and eat, to remember that as wicked and as powerful as sin is in our lives, it has been defeated. That even though we will still continue to struggle with sin in this life, no longer will it get the final word. We will not be condemned. We will not face condemnation if we're in Jesus because He was already condemned for us. Our sin will not separate us from God because He put an end to it for us. And because of what Jesus has done at the cross, the day is coming for all of us who are in Christ where we will never sin again. Never. We will never give in to a longing that, that takes us outside of God. We will never give in to the lust of our eyes or the lust of our flesh or the boastful pride of life. We will never sin again. We will walk with God in fullness of life in a world free from the curse. 
Man, but, but as good as that news is, we don't have to sit on our hands and wait for that day. The good news of what Jesus has done can help us overcome and face our temptations even now. Because the cross means that we never again have to doubt the goodness of God. Romans 8.32 says that if God did not spare his own son for us, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so when these temptations come, you've got to look to Jesus. You've got to get your eyes on Jesus and see, and if God was willing to do that for me, if he was willing to die for me and take my curse and my death upon himself and pay for my sin in my place so that I would never have to, then I can trust that he is absolutely good. I can trust that he is goodness itself and there's no bad in him. I can trust that he's always going to work out and bring everything into my life. Anything he brings will only be for my good. I can trust that, that he is fullness of life and there is no goodness outside of him and that there's no way that this sin could bring the happiness and life and freedom that life with God can. And don't give in to the lie of the serpent. God is good. He is so good. He is absolutely for us. He loves us and we can take it to the bank. We can trust everything that he says. He commands to give life, not to take life from us. We can trust him. He proved it for all time in Jesus. Let's look to him and not give in to the devil's lies. lies. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this good news. That as terrible as our sin is, uh, and as, uh, as, as awful of the reality as the reality of this curse is, thank you that it does not get the last word any longer that it does not win the victory, you do, that it will not defeat us because you have defeated it. Jesus, help us to believe uh, this good news, that you have overcome sin, that we are fully, we stand fully, freely, and forever forgiven because of what you've done. And that through this good news, we can fight our temptations. We can trust that you are good, that you are for us, that if you've already gone to the lengths of Father, sending your son to die for us, how would you quit on us now? How would you ever change your mind about us now? So as we come to your table to take and eat and celebrate the salvation you've worked for us, would you help us to taste and see afresh that you are good, that you love us, that you are for us, that you have turned what we used to bring death into the world into what you used to bring salvation, the symbols of your salvation. Help us to take and eat not, not mourning over our sin and our wickedness, but celebrating what you've done to overcome. Help us to respond to your grace now. I pray that you would in your name. Amen.